The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James, and this is brought to you as ever by The Athletic UK. And in today's show, we're going to be doing the final word on Saturday's win against Sheffield United, previewing Sunday's tie against Crystal Palace. And we're also going to be discussing, and we're also going to be looking in depth at two Fulham players. Firstly, Ola Aina, who Peter spoke to for his piece on The Athletic early this week. And then we're going to go in depth on our new signing, Josh Madger. All the backstory about his time in the academy at Fulham, his move to Sunderland, his portrayal in the Sunderland documentary, Sunderland until I die then his move to Bordeaux and then eventually his move back to Fulham Peter spoke to a lot of stakeholders in Josh Madger's development for The Athletic this week so we've got lots to discuss there and later in the programme Don Betts has an opposition preview with Dyer Kurnaz from Back of the Nest podcast uh, ahead of this Sunday's game at Selhurst Park uh, let's introduce my guests for today firstly Jack Collins hello listeners and Fulham's writer for The Athletic Peter Rutzler hey how we doing Fine, thank you. Um, just to say that at the moment you can get 50% off athletic subscriptions uh, to celebrate the return of the Champions League all through February. So you need to be quick to get the offer. If you'd like to get it, go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. You'll be able to listen to this podcast advert free and you'll get to read all of Peter's amazing articles and all of the articles from the rest of his team as well. So chats, let's start off with a bit of a final word from Saturday win at Sheffield United uh Peter uh you'll have been at the cottage watching that one and it was a tense one in the end wasn't it it was a it was a nervy 1-0 win Fulham definitely deserved the three points but we were holding on towards the end they had that late penalty shout there must have just been relief at the final whistle yeah yeah absolutely it was relief at the final whistle it wasn't it wasn't it was, it wasn't euphoric but it was just that release of, of tension when you're clinging on with a, a 1-0 lead and you could see that from the way the players react it was more <sighs> deep, deep deep exhale and then um, rather than um, jumping and cheering about um, definitely a tense game you could see that in the first half you know it's really really quite loud I think it was mentioned by, by a couple of reporters at the ground as well and you, you could tell from from both sides from both dugouts Matt Wells Scott Parker they're always very vocal anyway but it, it seemed like it went up a notch uh, Chris Wilder is never a quiet one either, uh, and, and and the same went on the pitch. You could see the intensity of the game, um, how much it meant to, to both sides. Really, I, I did feel Fulham were more proactive in the game. Um, we're trying to take the game to Sheffield United, who sat very deep. Um, the midfield would often sit very very much on top of their back line, and uh, it really made things difficult for finding space. And, and Fulham needed to be really quite smart and intricate to to break them down and. Uh, they got that in the second half with Anderson's uh, super pass to to Lookman and and that made the difference. Really, I wasn't surprised that Fulham sort of sat back. I think the nature of the result and the importance of it. I just I just think the risk was overwhelming, and <laughs> I think you could see why the why Fulham sort of collapsed uh, collapsed backwards and, and and held out and maybe got a bit of luck with a penalty, but uh, a really tense game, but an absolutely massive three points. What was your view on the penalty, Peter? I'll come on to Jack's view in a minute and see if it's changed from Saturday. But uh, what was your view on the penalty? So in real time, I, do, I didn't actually think it was a penalty. So where we sit uh, in the Johnny Haynes stand is actually near the Putney end. So or where I sit anyway. 
So I was not in line with it, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm next to the, the penalty area and uh, it did happen very, very quickly and it just looked like a fantastic save. Uh, I didn't really get the idea that it was even a penalty at all until I took a look on, on, on Twitter and social media and tried to see if I could get a replay. Um, my, my first impression was it was, was a save. It's a coming together. It's 50-50. Uh, but then I think when you watch it back, you can see why Chris Wilder was so angry. And, um, and you know, I think they could, there's certainly a case for that to be given. I don't think it's one that VAR would overturn just because the, because of the fact that Ariola does get the ball and there was still that sort of uncertainty. I mean, it's almost like there's different rules apply for goalkeepers, or at least the application is different for goalkeepers. And, and that makes it a little bit more difficult to say, to be concrete either way on it. Um, but I think if it was given, I don't think it would have been overturned um, because he does absolutely clatter. Uh, Jaden Bogle, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think, to, to be honest, I think Fulham are due a little bit of the rub of the green, um, which is kind of how I saw it. You know, a few occasions where it's gone the other way, even the Sheffield United game, looking back where Alexander Mitrovic, a similar sort of thing where he's, he's cleared the ball, but he's actually kicked the leg of his opponent and um, only VAR is able to actually see that. Whereas in real time, you wouldn't necessarily notice. So I think it's quite similar, but this time it, it's gone Fulham's way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think we, we've got a little bit of luck there, but but not too much. It's just one of those weird ones, isn't it? Because we we spend a lot of time thinking about what would happen elsewhere on the pitch. But elsewhere on the pitch, you don't have a goalkeeper spreading themselves in the same way that, that Ariola does there or, or that any keeper does in that situation to try and make themselves as big as possible because that's not how you defend anywhere else on the pitch. So, yes, people are right saying anywhere else on the pitch, if that tackle happens on Jaden Bogle, he gets a free kick. Correct. Uh, th- th- that's factual. But anywhere else on the pitch, you don't have a goalkeeper making that challenge and therefore it, it kind of changes the rules a little bit in terms of, of how it works. Do I think it's a penalty? <sighs> not not really. Would I want it if it was the other way around? Yeah, 100%. So, mm-hmm. so you know, it, it's easy to, for us to sit here and say, no chance, like, you know, keeper's got the ball, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But if that was at the other end, we'd be going spare. And and I think that, that it's worth bearing that in mind. But like Peter says, we're due a little bit of rubber the green. We didn't get the rubber the green at their gaff. We've got a little bit of the rubber the green at our gaff. And, and I think that's fine. We move on. I mean, Peter, Fulham's defensive record now is starting to get really, really impressive. Obviously, it's three clean sheets in four. Only Man City have a better defence in recent game weeks, going back about 13, 14 game weeks now. Since since Anderson and and Tosin came in, Sam. I mean, that is astonishing statistics, Peter. And we've talked a lot about the failings of the attack in recent weeks and finally Fulham have started to found some goals. I would hardly say it's prolific, but at least we are, you know, in the last three games, we have registered at least a goal and and that's been very, very helpful to our points tally. But the defence still looks so strong and the transition from the five at the back to the four at the back has been utterly seamless and and long may it continue because whilst whilst we've got Tosin and Anderson fit and please God, let them stay fit, I'm just going into every game confident that we can we can keep things steady at the back and, and I hope that continues. It's a shame really that, that Fulham are where they are in terms of the, the points gap. Well, it's only three points now, but beforehand. Because I think otherwise, you know, we'd be we'd be singing to the rooftops about how impressive defensively Fulham have been. Um, you know, Tosin Adrabayo and, and Joachim Anderson have seemed to have built up a very good understanding in a really short amount of time. 
Um, combine the fact they've also got Ola, Ola Reina next to them as well when they're playing as a five. He can play across the back line, doesn't really matter. Um, Anthony Robinson's come in as well. I think, actually, speaking of Robinson, I, I think one of the criticisms he's had in recent weeks, which is probably why he dropped out of the team as well, was his end product, just what he does in that in that final third. But actually thought defensively on Saturday was one of his best, best performances. Uh, made so many interceptions, loads of headed clearances as well, really important ones. Uh, got some really good height on his leaps, and he, he's he's grown as well. Um, they're such a young defense. Um, Joachim Anderson's twenty four, Lorena's twenty four, uh, Anthony Robinson twenty three, Tosnad Rabaya twenty three, Kenny Thetter is twenty five. So you know, this is a young group of players who've come in tasked with becoming a solid defense, solid back line in one of the toughest leagues in the world. Coming into a team that had all of that noise from 2018-19 I know we talked about that earlier in the season and how they just had this other factor to sort of to deal with and obviously the first three games as well conceding at least three in, in all of those and um, to be able to turn that around in the way they've done I think is a remarkable achievement it really is and it's given Fulham such a great platform going forward now of course there are games where things become a bit not exactly enjoyable and I think the first half on Saturday was very much the case it was you know pretty turgid stuff at times but Without that background, without that sort of backdrop and um, to, to build on, we wouldn't have Fulham as close to safety as they are now, and actually giving themselves a chance. And you know, chief among them, you know, was was is, is Anderson and, and Adrabayo. I, I think it's I think it's important to speak of them as a two because I think the way they both play, they're both ball players, they're brilliant. It really does give Fulham uh, another dimension to the way they play. You know, it, it gives opposition. Opposition teams more to think about. It allows them to, to spread the play a lot better. Um, and, and you know, and the thing with Anderson, of course, is you know he's come in four games in. He's been handed the captaincy uh, with Tom Kearney either not in the lineup, and then of late he's been he's been out for a while. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive. You know, he's only on loan. I mean, he's not. There's no option in his, in his deal as we've talked about before. And um, for him to come in and to lead the team in the way he does, it's it's been very 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 impressive. And um, you know, it's one of those things where it'd be, it'd be fantastic for Fulham to maintain that base. I think Scott Parker's talked about that before. Um, you know, when, when going forward, the fact that they have brought in so many young players, it really does give you that sense of we, Fulham can build here and, and build going forward. Uh, but the rate of some performances, you, you wouldn't, you would be surprised to have bigger suitors looking at the likes of Anderson, especially Tosin Adrabayo. I think he was linked with Juventus in January, uh, Ariola as well. So. Um, <laughs> maybe they're performing too well um, but you know it's, it's not a surprise and, and right now it's exactly what Fulham need to, to keep themselves uh, in contention for survival well I mean I've did some pretty rough maths but you talk about those first three games of the season Peter where we lost 3-0 to Arsenal we conceded four at Elland Road and then we conceded three against Aston Villa there have been 22 games since that kind of run of three games where we know that it was a bit of a disaster for Fulham. We've only conceded 22 goals in that time, which is one goal a game. And only Man City have got a defensive record of less than one goal a game, which just shows, Jack, that if you took those first three games out of the equation, Fulham's defensive statistics would be mind-blowing but of course it, it's skewed by those first couple of games where well it was a train wreck yeah and I, I saw a thing at the weekend that said that without Anderson Adrabayo we've played six conceded 14 uh, and with them we've played 19 and conceded 18 
So we're conceding less than a goal a game with Anderson Adrabio in the squad, uh, whereas we were conceding about two and a half, yeah, two point four goals a game uh, without them, which is pretty damning, isn't it? It's a pretty incredible leap. Um, I think what's interesting at the moment is we're seeing this kind of transition back into a Fulham side that is based on being hard to beat, aren't we? We and and it's quite interesting that. <laughs> that we're maybe more, I think we're maybe more, and, and this goes for me as much as anyone else, we're more worried about the fact that we can't score goals because we've been treated to such a glut of attacking football in the last couple of years. And with the exception of the Ranieri era, which was, you know, quite, quite dull, um, we, we've basically been used to Fulham being a reasonably swashbuckling attacking team. And now Scott Parker started this transition last year, I think, and and moved towards this kind of more reactionary style. But this year, I think we're seeing it in full. This is kind of an, an almost new Hodgson era in terms of what he's trying to achieve. It is you get a clean sheet and then if you can nick a goal, all the better. And if you can't, then then you don't lose. And and I think that what, what we're seeing in that regard is, is is quite weird and quite difficult for us to not come to terms with. I think everyone's pretty happy with the fact that we are now defensively quite good. But it's quite mm. strange considering where we were two, three years ago, right? And and especially considering how kind of swashbuckling we were under Yukanovic and what we expected from Fulham. To, to go back into being a very hard-to-beat side who keep clean sheets, who dig out defensive results, is, is a change. And perhaps that skews our vision of what the the attacking force are like. And, and it was just something I was considering the other week, that maybe we, because we're so used to to seeing us score goals on goals on goals, we've you know become a bit maybe too used to it and, and we we forget sometimes that it's actually quite hard to score goals in in the premier league and it's quite hard to it's quite hard to be a defensively able team and we are making that transition reasonably seamlessly now obviously draws aren't going to keep you up you need to win games and that's what the the worry is with it but i do think there's something that if you can build a platform and if fulham can stay up they've built a platform which feels sustainable in terms of a defense that they can that the Fulham can can kick on with then next year there is a real chance for us to to build on that platform and and really kick on I mean in the terms of wider football Jack and look I know that you are much better placed to analyze this that than I am given given what you do for, for, for ranks it does seem to me that pragmatic football seems to be triumphing generally this year and and no clear indication of that than Man City who have adapted from being a, a swashbuckling kind of carousel side under Guardiola to a side that is actually very very pragmatic and it is we're going to hold the ball and we're going to score a, a goal on the break and then we're just going to hold it because we know that our defense is watertight and that seems to be quite common throughout Europe at the moment as well. Do you think it's a season where actually pragmatic football seems to be working quite well and therefore it's a good time for Fulham to be playing like this? We're going with the trend of football rather than going against it. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference, I think, quite quite heavily in, in what Man City do. What Man City do, in my opinion, is they fall back into set patterns quite a lot. It's not necessarily the, the fact that it, it's kind of defensive or pragmatic. It's just that it doesn't really matter who switches in and out of the squad. They're so well drilled in the patterns they're playing that that they can almost score against anyone at will. And the back three of 
Edison, Stones, and Ruben Dias have have become basically impenetrable. But I think part of it is because of the way that Man City play and the absolute dominance they have in the ball. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't look at Man City and say this is a pragmatic side in the way that I might look at an Atletico Madrid and say this is a pragmatic side or, or an Atletico of old anyway. Um, and, and, and so, yes, I think you're right in that there is, I think this season, there is a little bit more scope in terms of not exerting yourselves too much, not letting yourselves get let it get away with you if you, if you know what I mean not like mm. kind of worrying about the it being 4-0 just getting the job done and, and I'd be interested to see how that changes with fans back in say I do think it's to do with fans I think teams are much less likely to push on for a a fifth or a sixth goal if they are if there's no fans in the stadium because there's no kind of point humiliating an opposition if you will because because of the way that the the stadiums work and because they're fellow professionals, whereas with a, with a crowd, you don't really have the opportunity to just sort of knock it about and not worry about it. And I think that we're seeing City win 2-3-0 a lot when when actually they, they're often 2-3-0 up, you know, in the first half. And the second yeah. half, you will see them not really massive. I think that's partly because the f- mental and physical strain that this, is, this season is putting on players. Um, you know, we're seeing more games shoved into a smaller period of time. You're seeing squads having to rotate more heavily because of COVID, but also an increased level of injuries for almost everyone, um, especially those who play twice a week because of the fact that games are being truncated, I think. Um, and I think that is making players a little bit more reticent to sort of go for it unless they need to. And perhaps we're seeing a little bit of that at Fulham and, and you know, touch wood and, and touch every piece of wood you ever can. We seem to be all right on the injury crisis front quite a lot. But, <laughs> you know, we are seeing, I, I don't know if that's because Fulham are, you know, happy to kind of tuck in once they have a lead, happy to to not aggressively exert themselves in, in too much. And maybe that's part of this and maybe that's part of Parker's plan. It's interesting you mentioned the injuries there because I think Scott was asked about it uh, before the game and he's actually quite a superstitious guy. I think the first thing he said was like touch wood and I think the fact that it was even asked, he, he probably felt he's, it's been jinxed. So the fact we brought it up again here, I think it's, it's going to get people a little bit worried. <laughs> um, can I add something on the pragmatic front? Because I, I agree more, I agree broadly with what Jack's saying there. I think there is definitely a, a sort of a change in it. There's less of a, an impulse to entertain, if you see what I mean. And um, but when it comes to Fulham, I wouldn't say that they're wholly pragmatic. They absolutely are pragmatic. Like, there's no getting away from that in terms of how they approach different games and the way some games have panned out because there's been loads of nil-nil draws. A lot of games have been very, very drab. But there's also been quite a few games where Fulham have really entertained. Um, the, the, the general, I would, I would say the neutral's perception of Fulham is not one that's quite negative. Uh, it's generally been quite positive because of the patterns of play that Fulham try to to implement on, on uh, within a game uh the way they do actually take the game to bigger teams as well so just thinking obviously Everton away Liverpool at home um City away you can make the case um United at home like the, these are the games that people generally see and they, these are the games where rather than Fulham just setting up with two two blocks they actually do play good football and take the game and really try and manipulate the opposition so there's definitely a pragmatic edge which I think Scott Parker, as, as you guys have said, has really sort of tried to build over time since he's come in as, as, as Fulham manager. Um, but I, I wouldn't say it's the only, it's like an all-encompassing thing. I think there, there is definitely another side to Fulham that when they can come out and play, they do. And there is, there is certainly a, 
a desire to do that. And I think we've seen that in, in some performances this year. Not all. I mean, it's hard to say it after Sheffield United and Burnley, but um, there, I, w- I wouldn't say it's just pragmatic. I think having both sides is really important and you need both elements if you want to, to, to push on. One final thing from the Sheffield United game that I meant to mention on Sunday's podcast, and I know a lot of people are saying this on Twitter, was how it was really noticeable. And Peter, you won't have noticed this because you were in the ground. You couldn't see the ball. And so many people have messaged me saying like, please, can you mention this on the podcast? Because of the white um, advertising hoardings on the seats in the ground and the way that the floodlights reflected off of those signs that they've put up to make the ground, I don't know, look a little bit better and not just a load of empty seats, particularly at the Putney ends on Saturday. If the ball was put in high into the box or there was a corner or anything like that, there was a couple of times where you just genuinely completely lost the ball. Um, I don't know why people want me to mention this. I mean, guess just putting the word out there that someone from the club maybe just needs to take a look at it but I don't know if you noticed this Jack but I certainly realized on Saturday that there was a few times where the ball went into the box and I noticed it particularly um, for the penalty for Jaden Bogle I had absolutely no idea where it was um yeah no I didn't didn't hugely notice it to be honest Sammy mate I um I, I figured that I could probably see it most of all uh Peter will have this problem though at the weekend when he goes to Selhurst Park because as soon as the ball gets pumped into the air at Selhurst Park especially from the journalist box you can't see anything until it comes down again um, so so whilst we were suffering at the weekend apparently um it will be Peter suffering uh this weekend yeah, it's hard to see from there. It depends if I get in on, on, on Sunday as well, sadly. Um, let's come on to the Palace game, which is on Sunday at midday. It's on BBC One. Um, I remember last time we were on the BBC uh, against West Brom, there, there was quite a few people on Twitter who didn't seem to realise that it was on BBC One and were pleasantly surprised. So once again, we're on the BBC. It's our third time this season. And Peter, it's, it's a big game. Palace got a win over Brighton on Monday. And I think we just have to start off talking about that. It's the first two goals that Brighton have scored without Wilfred Zaha all season. They only got two touches in the Brighton box, whereas Brighton bombarded Palace's goal for the entirety of the match. I mean, it was right up there with the biggest shithouse wins you've ever seen. And it's... It's remarkable, really, that that kind of result could ever happen. It was just one of those games that was just utterly extraordinary. And for Benteke to win it the way he did in the 95th minute was just unreal. And Brighton were kicking themselves. It's damn funny, wasn't it? It's an absolute <laughs> hysteric. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we obviously everyone likes to say how Brighton play good football. They've got good numbers. The underlying numbers are good. They should, should even out. But... They do seem to have this vulnerability. I mean, even when Fulham went to the Amex, Fulham weren't very good, but Ruben Loftus-Cheek nearly nicked it. Exactly the same thing. So it's a clear vulnerability that they have. And if they don't address it, then they are going to be in serious trouble. I mean, they're only four points off Fulham now and uh, their fixtures remaining are actually pretty tricky. So, you know, it actually might be symptomatic of a wider problem. I mean, the actual game was hilarious. I mean, the fact that it's Ben Teke with the volley as well. I mean, he's not had the... He's not been the player we all knew when he was at Villa. I mean, it's been such a shame to see that to see how his career sort of panned out. But he, he does have that technical quality when it when it when it when it drops for him, and it was a superb volley. And um, 
hilarious and it just shows what what Palace can do. I mean, they've sort of blown hot and cold this season and we talked about how their supporters are a bit, not confused, but sort of in that sort of phase of not really pushing for for Europe and they're not really struggling against relegation and they've lost that sort of emotion, I guess, of of, of league seasons. Um, I actually think maybe a win might suit Fulham um, just because it takes some of the pressure off them. Uh, There's less urgency coming into this game than there would have been if Brighton had won uh, or if there'd been a draw because uh, they still have that sort of shadow looming, looming over them. So maybe it will work to, to Fulham's advantage, but they're going to be tough to break down as, as we know from any Roy Hodgson side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd be absolutely fuming if you were a Brighton fan, wouldn't you? But I imagine <laughs> Palace fans are absolutely over the moon. It was, you know, it's just one of those absolute smashing grabs of of, of all smashing grabs. It was, it was a Roy Hodgson smashing grab, but he was he was pretty pleased and and look yeah like Peter says I think that's the result that probably sees them good if I'm honest I don't think anyone will catch them now I think there's probably just too much in there and also too many teams in there between them it's not necessarily you know the, the old points at, at, at this point I think it's the fact that there are just too many obstacles to get past for them to end up falling into the into the relegation zone now and perhaps that will take the pressure off them a little bit perhaps. I'm not going to suggest they're going to be on the beach in in February, but perhaps they will be a little bit, you know, lighter on their feet than they they were a week ago in terms of trying to dig things out, and and maybe Fulham, who are you know in a good run of form ourselves, will, will be able to will, will be able to make that count, and and also you know it's one of those where I think a lot of us are watching it on on Monday night going. Do we want a Brighton win? Do we want a Palace win? Do we want a draw, which maybe keeps them both in touching distance? But I think a Palace win was probably the optimal result for us in terms of it not especially in the way it happened in that it knocks Brighton's confidence it you know it's going to be they're now looking over their shoulders again they're worried about their inability to score goals and 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 like we say look Brighton create a lot of chances and we've talked about it you know all year they they do create a lot of chances but at some point when when your when your actual goals and your actual points under like values your your xg by so much is not to do with the fact that you've been unlucky it's due the fact that you can't finish mm. and at the moment brighton couldn't finish their dinner like it, it feels like this is a side who who are having a confidence crisis in front of goal on top of the fact that they weren't great at finishing in the first place and and when that happens you can spiral into a into a bad kind of run and I don't think this is the manager's fault. There's been a lot of criticism of Graham Potter, and I, I don't actually think that it's it's massively Graham Potter's fault. He set them up in a way that they're creating chances galore, and yet they just cannot finish them. I, I'm surprised he hasn't subbed himself on to try and start trying to finish them himself. At <laughs> but but that's kind of where we are with Brian. And and if it continues, and there doesn't seem to be any reason why it wouldn't continue, they will get reeled back in. And you know, whilst Palace will be delighted with that win, I think we saw from that game that. Palace can be got at. Palace can be beaten. And then the fact that Brighton created so many chances will give Fulham hope that if they make the same amount of chances, they will be, you know, we will be more able to to put them away. And and so I hope that that you know the boys have watched that game and and have thought, yeah, there, there's absolutely nothing to be frightened of here because there isn't. Yeah, there definitely isn't. And I think it's one of those games where I'm feeling quite optimistic going into it and, and weirdly optimistic as well, especially given our record in, in London derbies, which, which now stands at uh, not winning the last 20, drawn three, lost 17. And many of those losses have come against Crystal Palace. And, and Peter, we saw One what they... One clean sheet as well, Sam. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely nuts, which I assume is that one the other week against West Ham. Yeah. And Peter, we saw Palace do a job on Fulham earlier in the season. And look, it was very much, you know, we talked earlier in the show about how Fulham have been rock solid defensively since um, Adrobio and Anderson. And and that was the last game where we didn't have Joachim Anderson in the team. It was Adrobio and Ream that day. But we saw Palace do a job on us that day. Fulham missed a lot of good chances. Uh, and Palace scored with two of their only attacks of the match. And, and Wilfred Zaha again what was 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 the key man for them and and so much underpins Crystal Palace on whether Zaha is fit or whether he isn't fit and we don't know still whether he'll play on Sunday or not yeah I think he was back in some kind of training last week was the last thing that came out from from their camp so you know if he's not involved he's he's a massive loss and I think we, we saw that against Brighton as well I mean in terms of what they can create I mean there's a lot of pressure on Aberayeze and uh, he's a wonderful player but I think at this stage to have the reliance that Palace have on Zaha placed on his shoulders is is, is quite a challenge. And you know, the, this season, I mean, the, the, I mean, it's hard. It's always difficult to do with and without stats because there are so many different variables. And when the numbers aren't as strong, but you know, it's one point five points per game with him this year and zero point five without him. So I think that that kind of tells you everything. Um, Palace have been strange. You know, the, the last I think they've got three wins from the last five, and they've won, they've won games that are, you know that they needed to win: Wolves, Brighton, and Newcastle. Before that, there was one win from 10. So they do seem to go in these sort of phases and then grab the wins they need and, and, and then pick them up. But um, if, if there is no Zaha, it gives Fulham that, that advantage. I, I can't imagine they'll be put under the same strain. I think one of the issues with Fulham was the fact that they had that vulnerability at the start of matches. Um, they conceded a lot of goals in the opening 15 minutes or so. I think they've still got the most in the league because of that. Uh, and the same goes for after half time as well, that first 15 minute period. But they have got better in recent weeks. We don't see Fulham falling behind. We normally see them taking the initiative in games now in those periods. Um, that's how Palace got ahead last time. And Palace are very good at shutting up the shop. Um, and if, if Fulham can, can avoid that same fate and, and keep themselves in the game, as, as we've seen them do so many times now, um, you'd back them in terms of the attacking quality that, that Fulham have going forward um, with, with Madger and, and, and Mitrovic, who should be available Again, um, uh, Bobby Decadova-Reed, Cavalera, I thought was very good against Sheffield United. Um, th- there are options there that can cause Crystal Palace problems. And um, if you can get a win here, then it really does make things very interesting. And yeah, and maybe it even sets alarm bells off for some of the teams even further up. Because if Fulham can keep bridging that gap and pulling the line higher and higher, then the higher that points total is going to have to be at the end of the season. Yeah, it could be a, a, an alarmingly high points total if uh, if Fulham do continue to keep picking up points and obviously we know that Newcastle and and Brighton will win the odd game and and I've seen talk about could it be the first time since the West Ham getting relegated with 42 points that we see a team over 40 points going down I don't think it will get to that stage um just one thing before we take a break Peter um your piece on Ola Aina you had an interview with him earlier in the week that was published uh, in the Athletic and he was very positive and I just wanted to get some feeling from him. He said everyone believes and he thinks that Fulham can stay up. Now, I know that it would be quite weird if, if a Fulham player did a, an interview and said, no, I think we're going to get relegated. But still, it was really nice to hear that positivity from Ola Aina. And it's also been really nice 
for Ola Aina to be getting some of the limelight in the past few weeks. We, we talked about him at length on uh, Sunday's podcast after his performance against Sheffield United. And he's been a real revelation no matter where he's been picked in the defence, whether it is centre-back, left-back or right-back. Yeah, I mean, I agreed a lot, a lot of what the guys were saying on, on Sunday about, about Ola and how he's improved. I think that's the, the key thing for him. I mean, he did have quite a, a slow start. I think he, he would admit that himself and um, his improvement's been, been really, really impressive. And, you know, he, his versatility, his versatility is such an asset. And, you know, I think as, as was said, you know, for Scott Parker, it's a dream. It really is. And he's been, he, he said in, uh, when I spoke to him that he's been both footed since he was 11 and he's never really not known having, uh, been moved around the team in that way, and that that makes him a, a good asset. I, mean, I guess in one sense, it means you can't home a pos- like hone in on a position, but those are the players you, you certainly need in your squad. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, you'd expect him to say the, the positive things about belief. I think Scott Park has been uh, consistent with his message, uh, and it was interesting to hear. You know, as you'd expect, that the the players also buy into that. Um, but I think the tone of how he came across was important. You know. Olerain is a, a really positive, outgoing guy. I think you see that from his Instagram this week when he tried the Weetabix baked beans challenge, which looked vile. What I found really weird with that is that he, he I think he poured the beans on his Weetabix without cooking the beans. So Whoa. I don't know how. Like, oh my I, word! Well, it looked Why? like that anyway. I mean, that's it? how it, that's how it seemed. I, he may have done, but it, it seemed to go straight from the tin. Unless I, I'm, I didn't watch it properly, but I mean, if he's doing that, then there's no hope for for Weetabix and beans. Um, but yeah, just in the, like I spoke to him after the game and naturally would be very positive because of the result. But in terms of the belief within the camp, he, talk about, he talked about how, you know, the fact that they'd been able to come through that game as a young team, I mean, it does show that they can cope with pressure. And there was a lot of pressure on, on Saturday's game. I, I guess now in hindsight, we sort of forget that a little bit. But because of the result on Burn, against Burnley um, and the expectations being raised because of the win at Everton... Um, it was such a huge opportunity and for that squad to then go into it and come through, um, you could see from the celebrations anyway after the goal and how much that, that meant. I mean, Scott Parker, the pitcher Scott Parker as well. and um, You know, it's, the fact that they've come through that, it just it's, it's a massive boost for, for the squad and, you know, he came across really well. Um, he seems to be really enjoying himself. There seems to be quite a, a positive atmosphere within the squad, a quite a close-knit atmosphere, which you wouldn't necessarily expect with considering everything that's been going on with COVID and um, uh, and everything else besides the fact they're in a relegation fight, a lot of new faces, um, a lot of the players seem to like knew each other beforehand. I think Olerena and Adam Ola-Lukman, I think they, they knew each other before. Josh Maja knew Lukman as well. Uh, Maja played with Aina for the Nigerian squad. So like in terms of the players coming in, there's that, that adaptation period hasn't been long. I think there's been a lot of real thought that's gone into it and, and being able to bring these players together has been has been huge and um, Ain has definitely benefited from that, coming back into the Premier League, showing he can still cut it. Um, I think his family live really close by to, to Motspur Park and that helps him too. So, yeah, I think, I, you know, it's, it's as I said, you'd expect this sort of positive message, but it's reassuring to hear it in the way that it's come across um, and it, that can only bode well at this point, especially considering the difficult run that Fulham had been in. You know, it was easy for Park to come out and say, no, the belief's still there, the belief's still there, but... Mm. Um, it has to be sort of backed up. And I think performances have done that and um, and Aina's work sort of do that as well. I'm just watching this Weetabix challenge that Ola Aina did and I take back everything I said. The man's a disgrace and he needs to be shipped <laughs> straight back to Torino. It's absolutely... Yes, no, okay. 
it's not, not okay it. at all. He looks like he's really not enjoying it as well. Like, yeah, well, he, reasonable. Of course, he's not enjoying it. He's eating cold <laughs> baked beans on a Weeabix. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, the question should be asked. Really, I mean, if I'd seen that before, I would have brought it up. My word! Yeah. If he if he plays badly on Sunday, though, I'm fully blaming the fact that he decided to put cold baked beans on a box of Weetabix. Wow. Yeah, really bad. Not for me, Clive. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then afterwards we're going to look at Josh Madger, who I assume hasn't been doing Weetabix with baked beans this week. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here and joined by Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Rutzler. Hey, guys. Uh, Peter, your piece uh, went live today about Josh Madger and it talked about... Um, all of his career, really, from being in the Fulham youth setup to moving to Sunderland. He had a gap uh, at an academy between Fulham and Sunderland, and then his move to Bordeaux, then back to Fulham. It was a really interesting piece, and a lot of it centered around his feature in Sunderland Till I Die, and the fact that maybe his tale was a bit misunderstood all i can see though after reading the piece peter is just the tale of a really talented kid that is a natural born finisher and seems destined for the top but has maybe not had the clearest path to the top that other footballers his age may have enjoyed yeah it wasn't the, the, the most straightforward path a very different path i think something until i die is the interesting dynamic and in all of that um, it was interesting hearing from from both Jack Ross, but also Charlie Met then, who, who that was sort of the the media side, and uh, as a director at Sunderland, and they've just had the takeover go through. So, um, and just to hear that the way it was portrayed, they they felt was a bit unfair. Um, for those who haven't seen the documentary, I would recommend it. It's a really fascinating two. It's two series on Sunderland's plight when they got relegated from the Premier League, and then uh, their, their bad season in the Championship, and then their their, their struggles in League One. And, and Josh Madger takes centre stage that season. He becomes the great hope with his goal scoring. Um, but because his contract was up at the end of the season, uh, they, they they lose him. They lose him to Bordeaux. And um, when Josh Madger uh, departed, he faced quite a backlash from the from the club. Not necessarily at the time, but I think once the documentary came out and they they, they saw how it was sort of portrayed I mean it was it doesn't necessarily present Josh Madger in a, in a bad light it just shows him as a professional footballer and pursuing his career and I guess it's how you interpret it and with, with, with your rationale on it um, but the fact that they use clips of him going out to meeting supporters and saying yeah no I'm, I'm in talks on a contract yet I'm going to sign it um, it just makes it it doesn't exactly paint a fair picture and both Charlie Matvin and Jack Ross when I spoke to them sort of contradicted that a little bit and, and talked about how you know he he was such a good positive force within the within the club after so after so many years of you know decline and regression and the start of that year um, after the championship relegation you know there was a lot of uh, strife there were some redundancies it was difficult um, but he was actually a really positive positive figure within it um, and in, in the piece I talk about how he ended up at Sunderland as you, as you mentioned there he, he was at Fulham from the age of eleven to fourteen he joined from Crystal Palace he was on the elite uh, professional performance plan which meant Fulham were committed to him for five years. Uh, but he wanted to leave after three seasons. Uh, Fulham didn't want to lose him. Um, part of that was because he, he'd moved, his family had moved, it was a long commute to training, but there was a little bit more to that as well. Um, and so that that meant that 
you know, he, he then dropped out of the academy system. He, he didn't get back into another club straight away. He, he joined the Kinetic Foundation, which are based in Croydon. They do fantastic work um, using football to help kids from disadvantaged and disengaged backgrounds to, to, to get education. And, and ultimately, their, their sort of yardstick is to stop the young people they work with are coming out of the not in education, employment or training. So whether that would be on a scholarship or uh, further apprenticeships uh university those sort of things um Madja went in there for a year he went on their part-time for more than a year on their part-time program um and he was fantastic for them you know he really stood out uh, harry hudson who's the head coach there and uh, helped uh, co-found kinetic um you know he's, he said he worked with, with Jaden sancho and he, he thought uh Madja was one of the was the better was the best player he's worked with which was pretty pretty high praise indeed um and, you know, it was that period because he wasn't in the academy system. He wasn't playing as much as, an, as a regular academy player would do. Uh, it was really important for Josh. You know, he'd been struggling a bit physically after he came out from Fulham during, due, due, due to his growth. Um, that happens quite a lot with, with young players. Um, but then, you know, it, after so many different trials, he, he finally ended up at City. And I think, it was a, I think it was with City that he played against Sunderland and then Sunderland picked him up uh, and went from there. So he was fortunate to have Kinetic. He's the piece talks about how he's gone back quite a few times and to, to, to offer his advice to some of the young kids and um, and yeah and then moving forward he also talks about his time at Bordeaux which we talked about earlier uh, in the year uh, after he signed here on, on the pod and uh, I spoke to Paolo Sosa's assistant Manuel Cordero who sort of elaborated on what kind of areas of Madge's game he wanted to improve um, and he was full of praise as well um, he thinks Fulham is a really good fit for him going forward and that they saw him as a key part of what was to come so um, yeah, sort of a whole package sort of approach. and But I think it was interesting just to get that second side to Sunderland until I die because you just see the player moving on. You see the agent getting de- uh, stigmatised a little bit. And Charlie Met then himself says, look, look at his career path. You know, this, this, his, his representatives know what they're doing. And uh, it's to Fulham's benefit, really. It's, it's strange how it's come full circle. Uh, Jack, what's your thoughts on these documentaries there was obviously the all or nothing Tottenham there was Sunderland till I die and the nature of these tv shows there has to be a hero and there has to be a villain and like for instance in the in the Spurs one I don't think it painted Danny Rose in the best light and it it painted Josie Mourinho in quite a good light weirdly um, given everything that's going on would you be happy if one of these was done about Fulham they seem to be a lot more hassle than they're worth and you saw with the plight of Josh Madger what kind of can can happen because you know TV producers and, and execs need a narrative to make these things popular I see why it happens but it's just it's just a shame and, and seems a bit unnecessary surely the money isn't that good well I, I think you've got a take it all with a pinch of salt right you, you take all of it and you watch it and you watch it in in the fact that it is a, a you know a tv series made for entertainment it is not necessarily all painted through the exact prism of uh, of truth now i'm not saying they're making things up but i, I would I'd imagine that if you if you look at all these things individually you'll see there are a lot more sides to every story than than perhaps you you only get on on, on the tv series where they're kind of developing a narrative right and they have to they have to pick a side to to be part of, right? And, and with Sunderland Till I Die, I think they bought into the concept of this new ownership trying to turn the ship around. And therefore, with their kind of blessing, they tried to make it as if that ownership were therefore doing the best that they possibly could every single day for the football club. And 
And I think if you speak to Sunderland fans, that's not necessarily how they feel about, about what that ownership did for the football club. Now, that's not to say that they're bad blokes. It's not to say that it was a complete disaster. But I don't think it was maybe as perfect a, a first go. It wasn't quite the the tragic you know, failure or the, the heroic failure that it was perhaps made out to be on Sunderland Till I Die. And, and so then I think once you, once you start to look at it in that light and you start to enjoy it as as a drama as opposed to a you know a full-on behind the scenes look at everything that's going on in the exact truth of the cold light of day then it becomes a little bit easier to digest yes Danny Rose was painted as a villain in the in the Tottenham in the Tottenham one and and yes Mourinho was probably painted in slightly nicer light than imagine a lot of people around the club see him but that said you know they've got to be they've got to find those narratives would I be happy if there was one about Fulham I mean, I'd be incredibly surprised given how close the club keep their cards to their chest that yeah. they would let a, a filming crew in to, to look at anything behind the scenes at Craven Cottage. I, I wouldn't be like massively unhappy, although I do think that Man City aside, most of the teams who have had an all or nothing have, have tended to have reasonably tough seasons. Um, and therefore, I think it's maybe best that, that we keep the cameras away from the cottage while we, while we try and get on our feet again. Uh, and of course, Peter, it feels like Josh Madgen's association with Fulham goes in so many ways. Not only did he used to play for us and he's joined us again, but of course, his first goal, his debut was also against Fulham. And that was such a iconic game for Fulham because it was after that that Fulham went 23 undefeated that we then ended up in the playoff final with Slavisa and we went up it feels like his connection to this club is just so deep rooted and here he is now trying to save us from relegation back at the club he started and and you talked about how Hugh Jennings was asked whether he'd like to have Madger back at the club and, and Hugh Jennings said of course, that there is such an intrinsic link between Josh Madger and Fulham. It almost seems like fate that he's back. Yeah, it's uh, he can't seem to avoid Fulham, uh, or Fulham can't yeah. avoid him. It's um, it's strange how how these things sort of work out. And and, and you mentioned the the game against Sunderland because you know Fulham came into it, it was on, after a bad patch under Slavisa Kanovic, and uh, of course in the Sunderland dugout was was Chris Coleman. And then this assistant was was Kit Simon. So <laughs> another uh, Fulham link. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's strange. And obviously, he came on and scored that day, and that that obviously made an impression and sort of set him on his his current pathway. You know, and I, and I mentioned before, you know, he was he was at Fulham for about three years, and um, that meant when he came back, there are still some familiar faces around. Jerome Poku's one. He's currently on loan at, at Plymouth. Uh, Marlon Fossey as well. He actually played up front for the academy with Marlon. Um, Marlon's now been converted to, to a fullback. Um, so coming back in was always going to be familiar. He would know the training ground. He knew the people around the ground. And uh, and that makes a big difference, especially if you're coming in as a, a January signing, uh, January signing in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it made it a really good fit. And, and you know, you can see from from the different voices in the piece uh, and from the people I spoke to, it's you know, there's a general sense here that he's a really talented player. I mean, it, you normally get that sense anyway with these sort of things, but... The one thing that keeps coming back time and time again is about his, his, his work in the penalty area um, and, and how effective he's, he is in those zones. And 
Uh, for Fulham, it was exactly what, what, what they need now. And Scott Parker has talked about trying to reduce the pressure on him because you can, you'd expect, you know, as a January signing to come in and think, oh, can he be the difference? Can he make a difference? And obviously scoring on his debut was fantastically important for him. You know, that really does give him a lift. Yeah. But it's, you know, with Alexander Mitrovic there, you've got a top player who I think Fulham would probably see as the, the first choice still. Josh Maggi still only 22. He's still adapting to the Premier League. And maybe we saw that a little bit against Burnley and Sheffield United. But as a player coming in to offer them something different, who's known for scoring goals, that's, that's, that's how, he earns his, how he earns his money. You know, that is exactly the player that Fulham need. And, you know, maybe maybe you can extend that, le- that, that link with Fulham for, for a little longer yet. Yeah. And one of the other people that you spoke to in the piece, Peter, was Manuel Cordero, who is the assistant coach at Bordeaux, which, of course, is where Josh is on loan from at the moment. Uh, and we've actually got some audio of your chat uh, with, with, with Manuel here. And, and here he is talking about the improvements that Josh made while he was in France. He was already a, a very intelligent striker inside of the box. He, he has that instinct inside of the box that many players, they don't have. Mm. But he has it because he works hard every day uh, for that. So in the end of the training, is something that he asks and is something that we also have implemented as a staff. It's to work a little bit, finishing situations on very different ways. And it's something that you could see on a daily basis. He, he, he's key strong point it's his finishing he, he gets space inside of the box very easily he gets one touch out of the defender and he has left or right shoot in every angle of the box he has it perfect he has the mobility inside of the box that instinct mm-hmm. that it's really not instinct because you really need to work hard to know how to work with the defender in order to have space he also so all of these things that he had it uh, on himself already it's something that we worked and tried to develop more and you, you could see a key uh, change and improvement in, in, in that capacity he was already strong and he became stronger I mean Peter really good to get that insight kind of from the horse's mouth as one of the most recent coaches to work with Josh and you could naturally look back on Josh's time at Bordeaux and think it was a bit of a failure but it also is the bridge move that allowed him to move from League One to the Premier League. And whilst he wasn't massively prolific there, it seems that the improvements that he made in his game, as Manuel was referring to, are putting him in good stead to become a top-level footballer. So it's kind of an odd one to judge his time at Bordeaux, but probably one of those that he may look back at the end of his career and say it was a really important time, if not a a fruitful time. I think that's exactly it, Sammy. Um, you could see, you know, that Manuel thought highly of him, and yeah, he he, uh, he worked under Paulo Sosa, who was dismissed at the start of the of the season. Um, and coming into this campaign, he talked about how you know they felt that Josh Magic could score twenty goals in the French league. You know, this is one of Europe's top five leagues. Um, so the fact he's gone there, it was not an easy period at all. Um, you, know, you had three different coaches Josh had to work under. Um, there was some boardroom unrest as well, some fan unrest about what was going on at the top of the club. Uh, French football itself is currently in crisis anyway because of the television rights dispute. So yeah. it's not been an easy period. He didn't know the language. Uh, he had to adapt. And, and that's, that's <laughs> it's been, I think, learning experience is the best way of describing it. And then fundamentally, and when you look at the underlying numbers, you know, he's actually been okay. Um, in 2019-20, which the curtailed season in France, that's that's probably the closest he had to a full season with Bordeaux, 
Um, he was averaging a goal every 120 minutes, which is exactly what he was doing at Sunderland uh, before he got his move and he scored 15 goals from 24 in League One. So, you know, his strike rate's still there. It's still, it's still been underlying everything. And I think adding those different aspects, as Manuel talks about, uh, you know, being more of a target man, improving his link-up play, um, adding more presses to his game per half, you know, adding more to the overall picture for the team. Um, is exactly what Fulham need, really, because they need a striker who can do more than just score the goals um, if they want to play in this setup. Uh, I don't think he's the quickest player. I don't think he's the kind of player who's going to run, peel away from defenders, but he's very intelligent. He's very smart with his movement. Um, we've already seen that his link-up play is good. He can hold up the ball. So I think that in that sense, Fulham have got a more complete player than the one who left England in the first time. And that that can only be a good thing in in, in the team's survival hopes. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll see uh, how he gets on this weekend uh, against Palace. Obviously, those two brilliant goals against Everton really kick-started his Fulham career. No goals uh, against either Burnley or Sheffield United, but look bright in patches, and I'm and I'm confident he's still going to fire a few more goals towards towards survival. And we said that, didn't we, when he joined Peter? That we said we actually weren't going to be 100 percent sure how much of a difference he would make, and, and he's proven us slightly wrong really hasn't he in that in that sense because he has come in got those two goals against Everton and even if that's all he did for the rest of the season if Fulham were to stay up you could look back at that and say it was a catalyst really for this run that we've we've gone on and obviously there's a lot of ifs and buts but you know he's already made an impact and his loan signing already looks like it was worthwhile yeah absolutely uh, absolutely he's made an impact and you know that those two goals are could be vital. I think you're right. You know, you could easily look back on it if, if things fall the right way and say this was a catalyst for something. Um, you know, there is that the side of the fact that he is quite young and he's not experienced. And I don't think the expectation isn't that he comes in and, and, and does it all for Fulham. Um, but yeah, when you start the way he has, I think that's, that's, that's only a positive thing. And uh, just having that extra attacking option was so important. It was one thing that Scott Parker really wanted. And the fact he's now got a player who has shown he could score at this level. It's, it's, a, it's a real boost for the team, and um, the, the, I guess the, the 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 thing for Fulham is, you know, if he does do well, if he does score a few more goals, then suddenly the the nine million pound option to buy that they have on the loan suddenly looks like an absolute bargain. Um, and it, again, it just calls into that sense of what what Fulham could potentially build next year if if things fall in the right way. And let, it's, it's, as you say, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. There's still a, a tough task ahead. There's still three points between Fulham and safety. Um, Madger is only 22. Uh, and Fulham will equally be reliable, reliant on, on Alexander Mitrovic coming back in and, and, and making an impression. That was always the sense I got from, from the club in January that he would, be, he would need to be the first choice for them and anything else would be a bonus. And if that bonus turns out to be the difference, then, then that's fantastic. And um, We'll just have to see, really. But the way he started, it bodes really, really well. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. And then afterwards, Dom is going to be chatting to Diakunas of Back of the Nest to get a Palace opposition preview. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. And let's cross over to Dom Betts, who has our opposition preview as ever. And today he spoke to Diakunas, who works for the Back of the Nest Crystal Palace podcast and YouTube channel. Uh, and he started off by asking Dyer how he thinks Palace have fared since Fulham and the Eagles met earlier in the season. 
This season just feels completely different as a Palace fan. Um, I mean, we've we still got Roy Hodgson. That's the that that manager side of things. He's still there. But in terms of results, it it hasn't quite felt the same. We, you know, this season we've had some odd results, such as losing seven 0 to this Liverpool side, who are not on the level they were in previous seasons, which we never struggled this badly against. We lost three 0 to Villa, who they, they managed to score majority of the of their goals when they had ten men. You know, it's been a long, dragged-out season for Palace fans. And in a way, I, mean, I am looking forward to the season ending because it's just mediocre. I, I, I don't think we are a top-six club, but some of the football that we played and some of the results that we got, we should be doing better at this stage after surviving so long in the Premier League. And, you know, it, it's frustrating, but I, I'm used to it at this point. And luckily enough, I've been busy um, this year so I haven't spent all my energy on Palace and if I did I'll lose my mind because it can be very frustrating at times watching this team play yeah coming from a neutral perspective obviously your your win against Brighton do you do you think that means you guys are safe now before the Brighton game I was actually worried because I was looking at the fixture list and towards the end of the season we've got some hard games coming up and there was a if we didn't win that Brighton game and, you know, this game, which is going to be a struggle as well, then I feel like there would have been a relegation battle for us and it would have been really dumb of us to say, well, we're safe, we're safe with Crystal Palace. It doesn't work like that. Um, but I, I feel like we're, I feel like after that Brighton win, I feel like we will have enough points to survive and we'll pick up points as well along the way. Roy loves picking up, you know, an odd result here and there. So, yeah, I feel like we're comfortable at this stage. But then again, Dom, the season is done. Um, and the season was done even before the Brighton game, pretty much. So it's like, what are we, what are we playing for? Because Roy said that um, be careful for being too over ambitious, and you know, I, I don't know what his ambitions are. But as Palace fans, yeah, we're just gonna go and drag it on to the end of the season. But what for? <laughs> Obviously, you know, everyone knows how poor your run of results are without Wilfred Zaha. What, mm. what, why do, you, why do you think that is? Do you think it is because there is no one sort of to drag the ball from defence to attack or what do you think is down to the reason why you guys seem to perform so badly without Wilfred Zaha? Well look, Wilf he is a club legend he is that main man going forward for us and I feel like at times he's very underrated but I think the main reason is you can say Wilf isn't there and that's why we're not That's why we're not picking up results but I think it's down to tactics we play as we do like uh, without Wilf, like he's in the side it doesn't work, you know, we try to play counter-attacking football with players who hasn't got pace. And it's just like watching players run at five miles per hour, just running slow motion towards it. It's just, it's not going to work. And I feel like that plays a big part to it. Um, and we miss Jeffrey Schlupp as well. So when you don't have pace in the side and when you're trying to still play the counter-attacking football without, you know, Wilf or Schlupp, it, it's not going to work. And that's why we've struggled so far. And when you're looking at the last game against Brighton, you know, we managed to get a result, but... I don't know if we'll talk about it, um, but it was a smash and grab. And I don't mind it because it's against them. But the performance there was, especially the second half, was quite worrying once again. When it comes to Hodgson and Palace, do you think this is his last year? Or do you think he's still going to be your manager come next season? I pray to God it's not last year. <laughs> Look, Roy's done a brilliant job, Dom. Um, and when he first joined us, we, we we didn't score for seven seven games and he kicked us up comfortably. But the problem is we are we have no identity, you know. I I don't know what direction we're heading in as a club. We built a new academy facility, but Roy decides to have rather seven players on a bench 
then put academy players there because he basically said that he's not going to give them a chance. So we're not on the same page there. We've got, you know, uh, players who maybe deserve more chances, which Roy's not. So I feel like he has to move on. And Palace fans, I think Steve Parrish will be a crazy man to keep Roy Hodgson for another year um, because Palace fans have been way worse than me in terms of they're just saying, I've had it, I can't watch this week in, week out. And that, I guess, if you're a Fulham fan watching this, you must be thinking, you spoiled, you know, you lot are so spoiled, etc. But it is so boring watching us play. And I think C. Parrish is a Palace fan as well. So, come end of the season, we've been linked with Eddie Howe, uh, Sean Dash. Um, and, you know, I think... I think Eddie Howe will most likely be at Palace and I'll be surprised if Royce there because he just he's not on the same page as we are. We need an identity, which we haven't got right now at Palace. We're just surviving, surviving. But one of these seasons, I think next season, if Roy's at the club and if Wilf leaves, 100% we are getting relegated. It is as simple as that because Wilf has saved us single-handedly this season. We've been Zaha FC. If you look at how sort of Burnley played against you guys and obviously you spoke about how, how sort of poor that was what do you think are the areas that Fulham should be looking to exploit in this Palace team? Well it depends on who's playing if if Patrick Van Arnold is playing and that is one player that you should be targeting and teams have been targeting luckily Tyreek Mitchell he came in against Brighton but he just cannot defend I, I, I just don't understand like his positioning and everything it, it, defensively he's lost and it, it's hard having a left back who can't defend because teams just target you but I feel like, yeah, if you, the main thing is if you pressure us, if you show a bit more, um, if, if, you have, if you go into the game with high tempo, because as I said, Burnley looked like prime Barcelona against us. And I haven't seen Burnley play like that all season long. So, yeah, I think it's more of a mentality issue. If you, if you go at us with the, with the intention that you're going to win all the second balls and you're going to be on the front foot, then... That was our main weakness in a Burnley game. And in a Brighton game, luckily, we defended a bit better. But targeting our defence this season, which under Roy Hodgson, you'd, you'd think that would have the best one of the best defence in the league. But we've got one of the worst defensive records in the league. So, balls into the box, running at us with full pace. I think that's what will cause us trouble. And if you're looking at players in this Fulham team who you think can cause you the most damage, which players do you think Palace will be mo- most worried about coming up against? I'm not picking only one player. I, I can't. I feel like that'd be disrespectful. I think um, looking at this Fulham side, uh, Lutman, for example, he I, I feel like he's just he's just kicked on at Fulham. He's he's a he's a threat. Uh, just uh, uh, Majo that you guys also got up front. We were linked with him, but um, Roy Hodgson, I think when asked about it, said that he didn't even know about him. Um, and Harrison Reed, I think I had to pick them three players. I feel like going forward, you have got some, you know dangerous players there and Harrison Reed was also linked with us in the summer as well I think Palace wanted him and he's solid in midfield putting in the shift so you've got some solid players and I, f- I feel like this game is going to be completely different to the game that we saw earlier on in the season when we faced you you've you've found you know you found your stride you've got some new players um and it seemed like Scott Parker and the players are actually they, you guys have belief I said it as well I feel like you guys have belief and going into this game I I'm expecting a completely different Fulham side. I'm expecting a Fulham side is going to be more dangerous going forward and also more sort of defensively as well. Um, so, yeah, I think them three players stand out for me. And if I can push you for a score prediction for the game, they are, what are you going to go with? It's going to be a difficult game for us. And I was not confident even before the Brighton game. And I know how up you're going to be uh, for this game. And I feel like we just had a 
we, we had a crazy game on, on during the week as well. So I'm not too sure how energized the players will be going into this game after that result. But hopefully we can grab something out of it. I'm going to go for one all draw, but I feel like Fulham could grab it 2-1 as well. So it depends on if you want my heart or my head result. But yeah, I'll go for one all. Well, thank you very much to Dom and to Dyer giving us that opposition preview uh, ahead of Sunday's game. And, and certainly a lot of concerns running around the, the Palace camp at the moment. And, and, and as we alluded to earlier in the podcast, not exactly sure whether they need to stick or twist when it comes to, to Roy Hodgson. I think we definitely know Dyer's thoughts uh, from that interview there. Uh, Jack, uh, what changes would you like to see? What would you like to see in general uh, this this weekend uh, against Palace? Yeah, I think it's, it's a case now of going out and giving them a game, a proper game. I, I don't want Fulham to go into this and, and and retreat back into the shell because Palace have got a good win. I think we look we should look at that game and see, you know, massive reasons for optimism to that we can go out and that we can go out and get at Palace. And yes, our London derby record is is terrible and yes, we have a bad record against Palace in in recent years and yes, it's Roy Hodgson and yes, they'll be hard to break down, but I think that Fulham have enough to beat this Palace side. I think we need to trust in what we've got in in this defense that has been so brilliant for us over the last three, four months. I think we need to go out and uh, and really have a go at them. And I'd love to see Alexander Mitrovic back in. I really would. If he's fit and available, uh, I, I think there's just a case that while Josh Madger's running and he's been excellent, I have no massive qualms about him. He's just occasionally been marked out of games that we haven't had that kind of link up in the final third. And I'd just be interested to see if Alexander Mitrovic coming off the back of um, obviously uh, an enforced break coming off the back of this Fulham team in a good place uh, and, and looking to kick on might be able to to really get something going. So I don't know if we'll see him if he's available off from the start. I'd, I'd imagine it would be more likely to be off the bench. Um, but I do hope that if he's available, that we see Alexander Mitrovic this weekend, because I still think he has a part to play in this season. Uh, Peter, do you have any uh, thoughts on who you'd like to see in the starting lineup this weekend? Yeah, I, I think Jack Jack's right. I think having Mitrovic back in the squad, back involved would be important. I think that would even potentially help to take that pressure off Madger a little bit. Uh, I think Scott Parker's talked about having to manage Madger's minutes, uh, but he's done very well since he's come in. You know, you wouldn't know that he hasn't been involved so much. Um, you know, I don't think he played for Bordeaux in the last few games before he joined. So um, that all bodes really well. The important thing for Fulham is maintaining momentum. Um, I think, I, you know, the fact that Fulham didn't really didn't change their lineup. Um, going into the Burnley game, suggests Parker wants to try and keep things the same, keep things moving forward. Uh, I think it, I would be tempted to keep things very similar. I felt Ruben Loftus-Cheek did well centrally. Uh, I think Cavallero suits being on the wing. I think we, we, we can all see that. Um, and then maybe there's the question up front. Frank Anguisa came back into the team and did superbly well. I thought, you know, I think that the stat was doing the rounds. It completed 12 take-ons, the most of any player in a Premier League game. And, um, he's slowly getting back to the player that we were so so effusive about um, before Christmas, uh, and, and I think that that's that's important. You know, having of course there's the option of Marilamina who comes in and, and, and Harrison Reed, and um, it's, it's it's nicely balanced in there. And then defensively, I wouldn't reshuffle too much. I think Robinson did a lot to to show his defensive qualities, um, which is really really important. And I do feel a bit for Joe Bryan. I don't think he's done anything particularly wrong this season. I think he was unfortunate to have a knock when Robinson dropped out of the team. Um, it's just the way the, the cookie crumbles sometimes in, in those 
situations. But in terms of the team, I would probably keep things pretty similar. I would keep that back four. I don't think a back five is a good idea against this Palace team. And you want to get forwards on the field. You want to be trying to create overloads and, and cause them problems because they are a very stubborn team to play against. Yeah, I, I think exactly the same. I'd love to see Mitrovic at least get a run, if maybe if it's off the bench um, this weekend. And and I guess my hope is that Fulham can get a, a first half goal. I think the longer that game goes on against Palace, I would worry that they might be able to shit out us the same way that they did against Brighton and maybe the same way that they did against us earlier in the season. But I think if Fulham can get their noses in front in this game, particularly if it is in the first half or, or fairly early on, then, then I hope that Fulham would have enough defensively to hold out this palace side which you know we know lacks attacking output particularly if, if Wilfred Zaha isn't on the pitch and it'll be fascinating to see if he makes a start on Sunday so all that remains for me to do is say thank you to my guest Jack Collins thank you very much thank you Sammy appreciate it and to Peter Rutzler thank you very much thank you Sammy uh, I will be back hosting the podcast uh, Sunday evening, Monday morning. That will be released. So I uh, hope you have a great weekend. Hopefully, Fulham can get three points. Come on, you whites. Yeah.